Yeah, Stephen said in that prayer, may your kingdom come, your will be done. And that's it, that's what we want. We want the kingdom, which is the rule and the reign of Jesus in the hearts of his people. Like we wanna experience it now before we get to heaven. We don't want there to be like a big pause. But the reality is that his kingdom, his reign is in some ways shattered by the brokenness that goes on in our lives. And I just want you to know, I'm one of your pastors and I'm a broken person. I'm like contributing to the brokenness going on around me. And, um, I, and I don't know about you, but I, I blow it and probably sin every day. I know I sin every day and, and I blow it relationally. And I'm asking forgiveness like all the time. I don't know about you, but if you just get near my house, that's probably the most repeated phrase that goes on in the Sabino family. It's like, I was wrong, will you please forgive me, you know? Because we know what it's like to blow it. Most recently, it's with my dog. I'm telling you, that dog is gonna be the end of me. I was outside and this dog would not obey and dogs should obey. And, and so I just thought, absolutely my anger's justified, you know? And I'm, he's yanking and I'm yanking and his collar comes off and then he really didn't wanna obey. And then I'm angry and I'm angry that I'm angry because I shouldn't be angry. And then I'm inside and Jenny sees me. She's like, do you just need some time? You know, because a lot of people are coming over. Do you just need some time? And I'm, yeah, I do. You know, and I, I seriously, I put him in his kind of kennel thing in the closet. I'm sitting in my chair trying to deal with my brokenness with my dog, you know, and there was no asking him forgiveness. I mean, we were, he's a dog, right? But I'm just like, God help me. I am a messed up person. And I know what it's like to have been sinned against and I certainly know what it's like to blow it with other people. This morning isn't about if you sin, I know you do. It's not about if you have broken relationships from time to time, I know you do, because you're here, because you're human, you're alive. And it's not even about um, when you have those. That's all the time. And it's not even so much about what to do when you have brokenness. That's another message about maybe how to ask forgiveness of others. And actually our text will get a little bit that direction this morning. This morning isn't about that. This morning is a profound question that's something like this. What will empower you to forgive people when you've been sinned against? Like where is the strength found when you legitimately have been wronged? Because the culture we live in doesn't know how to deal with sin. They are hurt and there's a phrase that you know that I've come to know, dude, I got ghosted. Like you ever been ghosted? Like that's, that's lingo for, and I didn't know it at first. And I'm like, that's exactly what's happening. You know, like when someone doesn't want to walk through brokenness with you, when you're trying to repair and, and all of a sudden you don't exist. And this culture that we live in is unable to connect the brokenness in their past with their future realities. We think naively, oh, I'm gonna have a healthy marriage someday. I know I'm gonna have a healthy relationship with my kids. I know in the future relationships will be great, but they don't understand that the health of their future has everything to do with how they have dealt with their past. And they think they can live a disconnected life. Because I want us to look in the scriptures to someone's life who was profoundly injured by others and was empowered by God to extend forgiveness so that we can do the same and be free and have the joy that we were meant to have. 
So if you've got a Bible, I'm in the book of Genesis. We're only, this, this message and next week, and we are done with Genesis and off to 1 Timothy. It's going to be great. But Genesis 42 is where we're at this morning. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there. Quick recap as you turn there. Last week, we saw a glimpse of God's purposes being fulfilled. That is, God promised Joseph's great-grandpa, Abraham, I'm going to give you land and descendants and blessing. And he had already gotten a piece of the land that he was in, descendants. There were numerous generations now coming from Abraham's line. But blessing, where would that be? We begin to see the blessing to all the world. Ultimately, we'll see it in Jesus Christ, but we began to see it, didn't we? When God rescued Joseph out of that pit of slavery, raised him up as second in command of all of Egypt, and now because of God's sovereignty through that trial, had put him in a place where he was literally blessing the world during a global famine by the wisdom God gave him to keep people alive. We are seeing the fulfillment of God. God is a promise maker and a promise keeper, and he is doing it in this passage. He's been doing that all along. But now we, we get into these kind of four chapters. We're only going to hit a few pieces of it. There's a lot of repetition, so I'll, there'll be chunks that I skip this morning. But we jump right into the narrative um, of his brothers coming to him. Genesis 42. I'm going to read for a little bit, so buckle up. Here we go. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you keep looking at each other? That's something my dad would say. Listen, he went on. I've heard there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we will live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy some grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he thought something might happen to him. The sons of Israel were among those who came to buy grain, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Joseph was in charge of the country. He sold grain to all the people. His brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he asked. From the land of Canaan to buy food, they replied. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Joseph remembered his dreams about them and said to them, you are spies, you have come to see the weakness of the land. No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food, they said. We're all sons of one man, we're honest. Your servants are not spies. No, he said to them, you've come to see the weakness of the land. But they replied, we, your servants, were 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no longer living. Then Joseph said to them, I have spoken, you are spies. This is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one from among you to get your brother. The rest of you will be in prison so that your words can be tested to see if they are true. If they are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies." So Joseph imprisoned them together for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, I fear God, do this and you will live. If you are honest, let one of you be confined to the guardhouse while the rest of you go and take grain to relieve the hunger of your households. Bring your youngest brother to me so that your words can be confirmed. Then you won't die. And they consented to this. Then they said to each other, obviously we're being punished for what we did to our brother. We saw his deep distress when he pleaded with us, but we would not listen. This is why this trouble has come to us. But Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to harm the boy, but you wouldn't listen. Now we must account for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph understood them since there was an interpreter between them. He turned away from them and wept. When he turned back and spoke to them, he took Simeon from them and had him bound before their eyes. Joseph then gave orders to fill their containers with grain, return each man's silver to his sack, and give them provisions for their journey. This order was carried out. They loaded the grain of the donkeys and left there. 
at the place where they lodged for the night, one of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey, and he saw his silver there at the top of his bag. He said to his brothers, my silver's been returned. It's here in my bag. Their hearts sank, trembling. They turned to one another and said, what has God done to us? And let me just take a minute to focus in on a, a few key details and give some color commentary to this. Look, Jacob had said of Benjamin, I don't know if you caught it, something might happen to Benjamin if he goes. You know, so he wouldn't send Benjamin. This favoritism that Jacob had towards Rachel's children just continues to ruin this family, right? He had favoritism towards Joseph and now clearly favoritism towards Benjamin. They knew that their dad loved these two more than the rest. That, that brokenness continues. But now we get to Joseph and Joseph says to the brothers, you're spies. In fact, he will say that repeatedly. And then he throws a bunch of them in prison for some time. Now, here's my question. Do you think it's to get some revenge? You think Joseph's like, oh, I knew what it was like being thrown in a prison by you guys. Now, why don't you taste your own medicine? Is that what he's doing? Or is he putting them through some trials, some grief, testing them to see has God changed anything in their hearts? Is there any brokenness towards these brothers who were lying and murderous? Has anything changed in them? I think that's it. I don't think it's revenge. I think he is setting up a situation to see what's going on in their hearts. And so he says, let, let one of you be confined to the guardhouse. At first they were all in prison and he takes one of them. And now he says, why don't you go back and I'll know that you're not lying if you bring Benjamin, the favored child, back with you. Now, guys, this all starts sounding very familiar. These brothers now have to go back to their dad with one of them missing to tell them one of them isn't with us. I mean, kind of starting to ring true, kind of starting to sound a little bit familiar like what they did with Joseph. And they realize it. They feel the compelling parallel going on. And isn't it like that when you know about brokenness of sin in your life? It's like right there on your mind all the time. Guys, it's been maybe 10 years or something since that happened. It is right there on their minds, like it was just the other day. In fact, they all say to themselves, obviously we're being punished for what we did to Joseph. Little knowing that Joseph could understand everything they were saying right there. Obviously we're being punished. They could connect the dots and that brokenness in their past hadn't gone away just because some time had passed. And that's how it is. You think I'll just let some time pass. I'll just let some time go on. Time will heal all wounds. No. You'll, you'll dig your ditch deeper. You'll sharpen your words better and brokenness will deepen. That's what time does. Time's great fertile soil for bitterness. It doesn't heal things. Guys, it was right there on, the, on their minds, the brokenness they had brought. Joseph turns away and weeps. You will see him weeping five different times in these closing chapters. This is deeply emotional for him. The sting of his past, even though he's second in command of all of Egypt. Oh, isn't it like that? Family brokenness has a way of continuing to break our hearts when we haven't dealt with it rightly, when we haven't sought forgiveness. God's gonna give us power to do that today. 
Now, I'm going to skip a bunch, but let me just say this. Joseph sends them away with their silver. They tell their dad what happened. He gives them more grain. They say, we need Benjamin to return. We can't go back unless we have Benjamin with us. So jump now with me to chapter 43, verse 8, because what Judah says is shocking to me. Then Judah said to his father Israel, send the boy with me. We will be on our way so that we may live and not die, right? They need more food. Neither we nor you nor our dependents. And then Judah says, I will be responsible for him. You can hold me personally accountable. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, I will be guilty before you forever. Guys, if you've been following the narrative, that should stand out to you because Judah does something he's failed to do up to this point. He assumes responsibility. And that's what men do. They assume responsibility. Real men assume responsibility. And look, while this passage, I wanna, I wanna talk to the men for just a second. I just wanna give all of us hope that your past failure doesn't need to dictate your future success. Like your past brokenness doesn't need to doom your future. And even Judah's past unbelievable, godless, irresponsible actions don't need to define him. You begin to see change in his life. That's hopeful for any man or woman, right? God can do it. He can change things. Consider Judah's past. In chapter 37, he was one of the brothers that sold his brother Joseph into slavery. And in fact, it was his idea. We can get money out of this. Sell him as a slave. In chapter 38, we find Judah sleeping with what he thinks is a prostitute. Turns out it's his daughter-in-law in disguise. And then seeing his daughter-in-law get pregnant, not knowing he had anything to do with it, he says, burn her. And then realizes... Oh, the hypocrisy, the deception in his life. This was who Judah was. And I'm telling you, now here, we see God beginning to change a man. Here he is saying, if anything happens to your youngest son, because he had failed this test before, if anything happens to this one, you hold me responsible. You take it out on me. That's what men do. I'm so excited to head into the fall and see this church strongly established, but I believe if I can just speak to the men for a moment, a key part of that will be men being men and assuming responsibility because that's what men do. They take responsibility for finances. They don't wait just for parents to pay their bills and the government to hand them some money. They figure out how to put their phones down and turn the TV off, get jobs and work hard. Men assume responsibility for finances. Men assume responsibility for their schedules. They stop saying, I don't have enough time. And they start believing, God gave you all the time you need to be the kind of man you need to be to your wife, your kids, your school, to get things done. Men figure it out and stop blaming everyone else. Take responsibility and they get things done. They take responsibility for others. They lead well and they serve. Oh, I want to be that kind of man. And I want to be a part of a group of men who go, that's where I'm heading to. I'm just saying Judah gives me tremendous hope from my own heart 
and for all of us. It's not the main point of our text, but man, did it stand out as I see a redemption story in Judah. Now we skip some chapters, okay? Jacob's going to send them back to Joseph with a bunch of extra gifts. They return fearfully. They eat with Joseph. Joseph's going to see his younger brother, Benjamin. It's a very emotional encounter. But then one last test is coming their way where Joseph sends them back home and puts a silver cup in Benjamin's bag, just hides it in there. In fact, Joseph puts his own silver cup in Benjamin's bag and then sends a person to catch him. And they say, look, whoever has that silver cup in the bag, you can kill him. We know we didn't do it. And lo and behold, they open Benjamin's bag and realize we're about to lose our dad's precious young son, Benjamin. Guys, it's in that context that chapter 44, verse 30, we're going to continue the narrative. Joseph Judah, I'm sorry, begins pleading with Joseph, and he says this, speaking about his dad. So if I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, his life is wrapped up with this boy's life. When he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. Then your servants will have brought the gray hairs of our servant, your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. Your servant became accountable to my father for the boy, saying, if I do not return him to you, I will always bear the guilt for sinning against you, my father. Now, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. That's Judah assuming that responsibility. Let him go back with his brothers, for how can I go back to my father without the boy? I could not bear to see the grief that would overwhelm my father. Joseph could no longer keep his composure in front of all of his attendants. So he called out, send everyone away from me. No one was with him when he revealed his identity to his brothers. But he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and also... Pharaoh's household heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But they could not answer him because they were terrified in his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come near me. And they came near. I am Joseph, your brother. He said, the one you sold into Egypt. And now don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there will be five more years without plowing or harvesting. God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh. Yeah child's like, amen. <laughs> Lord of his entire household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Joseph forgives his brothers, but what empowers that forgiveness? Did you hear what I just read a little earlier? Look back with me at Genesis 45 verse 5. And now, this is Joseph speaking to his brothers, don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. That's not true, is it? That can't be true. God sent you here? Are you kidding me? Don't you remember, Joseph? They sold you into slavery. You spent all that time in that prison. That was them. They sent you here. Their evil actions got you where you are. They were guilty, right? Were these brothers who tried to kill Joseph innocent? No, they were guilty. 
So God had nothing to do with Joseph's sufferings, right? Wrong. God had everything to do with Joseph's sufferings. Stay with me. Stay with me for a few minutes. Because if you see this truth from God's word, you will have power in the midst of pain, rape, being molested, gossip, being lied to, being cheated against. Whatever sin relationally could come to you, you will find an anchor in God and a strength to move through it for your good and his glory. Stay with me. Who's responsible for Joseph? The evil of the brothers or God? And to that I would go, yes. Both. Here's what I mean. Joseph will say it differently in Genesis 50. I'm going to have that slide put up also. Listen to this, how Joseph speaks of his brother's evil choices. He also says something shocking about God. Genesis 50, 20. You, that is the brothers, you planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your children. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Look, they had sinned against Joseph, true, but God had used their sin to accomplish his great purposes. We need to see the greatest example of the greatest evil ever given to someone bring about the greatest accomplishment of God's purposes you will find it in the cross of Christ. Listen to Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28, when we think about who killed Jesus, right? The Bible records, for in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. Let me just stop. Whatever God had appointed to take place was the suffering, the crucifixion, the death of his own son. So let me ask the question in the beginning. Was Herod guilty for Jesus' imprisonment and therefore crucifixion? Yes. Was Pilate guilty? Yes. Were the Gentiles guilty? Yes, the Romans were guilty. And were the Jews who put that whole fake trial together guilty? Absolutely. They were guilty. And yet hear the second part of that verse. They were guilty who had Jesus killed to do whatever your hand, God, and your will, God, had predestined to take place. The greatest evil, the greatest suffering, the greatest relational wrong that could befall anyone in human history was on Jesus Christ. They stand guilty for that wrong. And yet God is big enough to bend all of human history, including not only the good, but the evil choices of men to accomplish his great purposes that has brought about the greatest eternal good that could happen, namely our salvation and the glory of God. God will use evil to accomplish his good and he will be innocent of the evil of mankind even as he receives the worship of the good that he brings about with it. 
We have to connect the dots here. You have no hope moving through relational suffering if you don't get this, that embracing God's sovereignty empowers extending forgiveness. That's how it works. Embracing God's sovereignty is what empowers our forgiveness. That's the big idea, right? God's sovereignty and Joseph's example, just modeled it so well, empowers our forgiveness. Oh, so many Christians, if they've memorized the verse, they might have memorized this one, Romans 8, 28. The Bible teaches that we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purposes. All things work together for good to those who love God. How many things? All things, all things, good decisions and bad decisions. Good things coming your way in life and pure evil. Interestingly, Christians hold on to that verse. God's using all things. They forget to read the rest of the chapter, like your death. Oh, can all things not include that? God is using all things to accomplish his good. And what is the ultimate good God would have for us? Happy life? It's this, to make you more like Jesus. And as I slowed down long enough in my study this week, I sort of sat back and I began chewing on this thought. God, if your great goal is to make me more like Jesus, seems like it's at least possible you'll use more than a Bible reading plane to do it. Maybe when we cry out, Jesus, make me more like you. Jesus, help me to be more like you. Jesus, help me to, to love you, to know you. Perhaps that's an invitation to walk into his sufferings. Because there's stuff you ain't going to get out of your Bible reading plan. You got to suffer like Jesus did to experience the likeness that was his. Doesn't it make sense that to be like Jesus, he would welcome you into his pain? Jesus was betrayed. You might be also. Jesus was lied to. You might experience it also. Jesus had his closest friends run from him when he needed them most. You might be abandoned in a dark moment. God has not left you, but all your friends might. And in those moments, Jesus is working. Do we have a vision of God that is big enough to conceive of this reality? That yes, these actions done to me are evil, but my God was there when it happened and he is allowing it to accomplish Christ-likeness in me and his good for my future. Do we have a God that big? Our God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. John Piper years ago lost his mother in a tragic bus accident while touring the Holy Land of Israel. The tour bus was going along these, these roads in Israel, and there was an accident right in front of a lumber truck. It got into this accident, and a two-by-four comes whistling through the air, 
right through the window of the bus and basically impales his mother, kills her. She's dead on the spot. People did their best to try and comfort John Piper, as you would also. And they said things with all the right intentions, like, I'm so sorry that you went through that. God never intended you to go through that kind of pain. He didn't want this to happen. And John Piper knew their good intentions, but said this, I find no comfort being pointed towards a God who cannot direct the flight of a two-by-four. There is something even in well intentions that rings hollow of a God who cannot stop what is happening. Here is the greatness of our God, that in the midst of the most horrible rape or molest or indictment or gossip or slander or pain that you had growing up and I had growing up, that God was not causing that and will never be guilty of that, but was simultaneously sovereignly bending all of history, using that to accomplish his good purpose. You drawing near to Jesus, you perhaps having a future where you will speak words of life and love and power into the next generation because you found God in the midst of your pain. Joseph was able to extend forgiveness because he drank deep of the waters of God's sovereignty. Oh, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And God in his providence looked at Joseph's suffering in a cell where he could have just said, God, why? Why wouldn't you save me from a cell? And God would have silenced him because I care about a whole world that will die without this. And I would rather not the world suffer and allow you to go through struggle to accomplish good purposes. God's sovereignty empowers our forgiveness. We need to embrace God's sovereignty. We also need to extend forgiveness. But hear this. You cannot and will not extend forgiveness that you've not experienced. You have nothing to give. You can't extend forgiveness until you've experienced it. I'm telling you, there isn't a man or woman alive. As wrong as you've, if you've been wrong, that's fine. You have wronged a holy God. It is our sin that creates an a case against us. And we start with extending forgiveness, not by extending forgiveness, it's rather by receiving it. We have a charge against us. A holy God is against us. We deserve his judgment. We deserve his wrath. And interestingly, Jesus did for us what Judah did. You remember Judah? Judah offered to take Benjamin's place and just like that, the lion from the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ, steps in and offers to take your place and my place. 2 Corinthians 5 says this about Jesus. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made Jesus to become sin for us. Here's the great exchange. That all of your guilt, the things you've said and done, the stuff you don't want anyone to know about, the stuff you feel awful about, like I've got stuff like that, all of that shame, sin was transferred to Jesus Christ and he got our judgment so that all of his righteousness, all of his favor and his pleasure and his forgiveness and his perfect standing could be transferred to our account. He gets our sin, we get his righteousness. How? Just by asking him, just saying, God, please forgive me. I deserve wrath. 
How crazy that I'm angry at the world. When you have a case against me, once we receive God's forgiveness, and maybe that's you this morning, then we can begin to extend it. Because receiving forgiveness is where we start. It's not where we end. And guys, God's calling us to do two things this morning. I'm confident of it from his word. Number one, have you chosen to embrace God's sovereignty in your suffering? I've heard stories that are so dark, I can't talk about them without having a visceral reaction. I have acted wrong in anger in the midst of hearing some of them. But you and I need to embrace that God was sovereign in the midst of our abuse, in the midst of the gossip, in the midst of that pain. God was sovereign in that. Yes, it's wrong what your husband did, totally wrong. Yes, it's wrong what she said, absolutely, it was evil. Embrace God's sovereignty who allowed that and I'm choosing my words carefully. Choose to forgive. I'm not asking you to wait to feel it. Most of the things God wants me to do, I don't feel like doing them. Are you like me? I feel actually like doing a lot of things God doesn't want me to do. Forgiveness is like that. We choose to forgive. Maturity is choosing to love, not feeling it. And forgiveness is choosing to forgive. Some of you have someone locked in a jail cell in your heart. You've had them there for years. Maybe it's months, maybe it's sooner. You smile when you're not wearing a mask and everyone sees your happiness and how are you doing? You're always fine, but you have them in that place where you're not forgiving them. What empowers the key to turn the lock? That's embracing God's sovereignty. God allowed this to happen to me for his purposes. But opening the lock is your choice to let them out let them go free. And some of you need to have some conversations with people this week. I would challenge you not to let the sun go down on this day before you initiate that. It's towards a spouse. It's towards a parent. It's towards someone you thought, no, I unfriended them so long ago. They, I, no, I, yes, yes. So you wouldn't be crippled by bitterness. Oh, bitterness. It kills the one who holds it not the one you're against. It is a cancer who kills the one who holds it. You need to go to that person and say, while what you did was wrong, I have been wrong in being bitter towards you. Will you please forgive me? You trust in God's sovereignty that even allowed his son to be crushed for your eternal good, who even allowed Joseph to suffer for the blessing of all nations who even allowed you to be sinned against for the good of the gospel, for making more like Christ and for extending into your future unknown opportunities of ministry that God would give you and you extend forgiveness. You embrace God's sovereignty, you choose to forgive. And I wanna pray because you can't do it and I can't do it. We can't do it on our own, but God works through this prayer. So let me pray for us.